Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But do not let immorality or any impurity or greed even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, while trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. And do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by light, for everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Thank you, Bill. It is good to be back this morning, and it's a joy to be back into God's Word with you. I'm kind of, man, I'm, I'm a wreck. Thank you for music. The truth of the Scriptures through song is a blessed thing. It is a powerful thing. It is a penetrating thing. It is so sweet to trust in Jesus just to take Him at His Word. We don't take him at his word when it's convenient for us. We don't try to redefine it. We don't compromise living it. But it's sweet when we just take him at his word. And that's what this is all about. That's what this text is about. It is a powerful and penetrating text when we look at walking in the love of God and to imitate God. Thank you, team. And for doing that. There was a song that I hadn't heard, but the words are so applicable today. The sin that promised joy and life led me to the grave. And we're going to look at that in a little bit more depth. And so I'm happy to be back this morning. It's a joy to open the Word of God with you. And my other part of my family's here. Jared was with us last week, my number one son. But number two is here. And that's Joshua. And so I'm glad that he's here and he's still at home and going to Shasta College and serving the Lord. And 
in various capacities. And so as we look at Ephesians chapter 5, we began our study last week in the fifth chapter. We didn't get very far, but the first two verses had tremendous Tremendous application, tremendous depth, and we just couldn't just glide right through it and speak of God's love without speaking of the rich detail that he explains. And I tried to unpack these two commands to mimic God and to walk in love. I tried to do so with clarity, with focus, to really encourage you, and I hope you were challenged to focus this week on how you love, to mimic God. And and last week's title was Mission Impossible. We explained that a little bit, but this week I want to title this message Mission Possible. And as Courtney so beautifully displayed in the artwork, I love there's so many metaphorical types of places you can go, but there's a wall. And we build these walls within our lives, but it is not impossible, but through the Spirit's indwelling Things are possible and we can break through and live in the way that God wants us to live by mimicking him, by walking in his love. I came across a story about Alexander the Great this week and it was, it was kind of a poignant story. As he was going through his army, there was a soldier with his name, Alexander. And that soldier was brought before the king for acts of cowardice in the midst of battle. And the king looked at him in the eye and he said, soldier, drop your cowardice or drop your name. Brothers and sisters, if we name the name of Christ, then we walk as he walked. And I think Paul in some ways is telling us this. Live it or don't. You either are or you're not. 1 John 2, 6 says, the one who says he abides in him, what? Ought to walk in the same manner as he walked. Imitate God, walk in love. 1 Corinthians 16 sums it all up. Let all things be done in love. So we discovered last week, and I don't want to spend too much time reviewing, but we discovered last week that uh, walking in love is really best measured by how much we, what? Forgive. Thank you, brother. Our love is really best measured by how much we forgive. And I don't want to spend too much time, but the bottom line is there could not be a more direct definition of how we are to live as Christians in terms of behavior than that. Walk in love just as Christ loved you. Peter says love each other fervently because love covers a multitude of sins. We looked at what that means. And it's not that the more we love, the more God forgives us. It's the more we love like Christ, the more we forgive others. So we don't see the sin in other people. We see Christ in others. And that's how we're to love. And many of us think that we really have a pretty good handle on love. We're a loving person. We're very giving. We love people. But we, we see in this text that the greatest measuring rod for that is gauged by how much we forgive others. And doesn't God's forgiveness reveal that, the extent of his love? I mean, the most amazing act of love ever on display is forgiving the greatest evil. Christ did that on the cross, Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his love for us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. And biblical love, we know, is not a compromising love. 
It's not an uncon- I mean, it's not a conditional love. It's not an emotional love. It's not an external love. It's not what you get out of somebody for loving them. Christ's love. So that's where we left off. And if you remember, I told you last week, we look at this second aspect of love that's indicated by how much we know that we've been forgiven. How much we love is also based on how much we realize the depth of our forgiveness by God. So we're going to look at that and much, much more because this, this text is so powerfully relevant. But we need to pray before we dive in. So let's pray together. Father, thank you again for just the joy of being together. The great privilege it is to open the very revelation of God to man. Father, may the word be rightly divided this morning. May we hear through the empowering of the Holy Spirit, what you mean to tell us as you wrote these words so many years ago. And we thank you for how relevant this text is in our culture today, in our lives. May we look at it without compromise, without condition. May we step aside and see how radical the call is that you've called us to live so that we may experience walking in love the way you want us to. And so we look forward to what you're going to teach us through your word in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so let's start in Luke chapter 7. Jump back with me if you would, please, because I want to look at this very familiar passage, but in the context of Ephesians in terms of love and forgiveness. Luke chapter 7. And we're going to jump in, we'll pick it up right at verse 36, Luke 7, 36. The depth of our love can be measured against how much we comprehend God's forgiveness. Think about that. So let's see that on display as the great master illustrates, verse 36. So when one of the Pharisees, his name was Simon, invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life, and an immoral woman, literally, learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. Now, this was very likely a prostitute. In verse 37, she brought with her an alabaster jar of perfume. And without going into a lot of detail, we know that the perfume is extraordinarily costly. We know that she either bought it with the money that she earned from her prostitution, or it was actually given to her in trade for her services. So she brings this very costly perfume. She comes into the house where the Pharisee is entertaining Jesus, verse 38. And as, as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she was mourning over her sins. She was broken. She was ashamed. She began to wet his feet with her tears, and then she wiped them with her hair. She kissed him and poured perfume on them. A shocking scene in the first century, to be sure. Very relevant, but how do we look at that today? If you think about what this would have, how this would have played itself out if she would have come to the Pharisee and cried tears on his feet and wiped his feet 
and anointed him with this perfume, seeking forgiveness from him, he very likely would have slapped her across the face before she even entered the door and been escorted out. No unclean person could have touched such a clean person like a Pharisee. So verse 39, And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, Now this is kind of humorous. He said to himself, think about that, the Pharisee, thinking in his mind, says, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. This Pharisee didn't have any forgiveness in his heart. You know why? Because he didn't think he needed any forgiveness. So here it is. Look at what Jesus says in verse 40. Jesus answered him. He didn't say anything. Jesus answered his question. You think about that. Well, the Pharisee was thinking that this man is a prophet, he'd know what kind of sinner she is. You see, you'll forgive in measure as you comprehend your own forgiveness. Now look at verse 40. Simon, I have something to tell you. Oh, tell me, teacher. Verse 41. Two people loan money. A certain money lender owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. We know Darius. A denarius is about a day's work, right? Verse 32. Neither, neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? See, in other words, their love is tied directly to how much their debt had been forgiven. See, look at the answer. Verse 43, Simon replied, well, I suppose the one who had a bigger debt forgiven. He says, you have judged correctly. And then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Now get this, verse 47. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. It was a terrible indictment of the Pharisee. And he probably didn't even realize it. The reason she's doing this to me, Simon, the reason that she's responding to me like this is because she loves much. And the reason she loves much is because she has a deep sense of her sin and she seeks deep forgiveness. The depth of our love depends upon how deeply you sense the love of God in your life. To forgive somebody else is dependent upon how much you know you've been forgiven. See, here's a smug, self-righteous Pharisee in the middle of this house who thought he was so righteous and so good 
that he didn't need forgiveness. And so what's going on here in, in Ephesians, now we can turn back to Ephesians chapter 5. What's going on here is that as the Lord is saying this, God loves us and he forgives us, and that's the way we are to be with one another. Imitate God, walk in love. There is no bitterness and no anger, no wrath. In great measure, your ability to forgive is dependent upon your ability to love. And you will love and forgive little if you see yourself loved and forgiven little. If you see yourself as a vile, poor, broken sinner, destitute, beggar poor, like Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. We talked about that last week. If you see yourself as poor and destitute and forgiven much, then you'll forgive much. Measure your love. You love because you've been forgiven. You imitate God. Now, this is an interesting text and can be interpreted in different ways, but I don't want us to misunderstand the point. Because regardless of whether, the lesson here is not that Boy, I was raised in a Christian home. I got baptized at nine. I married the first girl I ever dated. I haven't missed a Sunday in church. That you're not forgiven as much as the prostitute saved from that or the drunkard saved at the mission or the abusive murderer saved in prison. That's not the point. You're not saved anymore. We're all saved from the death penalty. We're all vile sinners. Romans 3.10, there's no one righteous, not even one, Romans 8, 6, the mind of the flesh is set on death and is hostile to God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, who what? Who became sin for us, that we might become of God, for by grace we've been saved through faith. We've all been saved out of that. The point is, the more we understand that, the more we get to how we've been forgiven and how miraculous our salvation actually is. And the deeper our love for God and the deep, deep, goes deeper when we understand his love for us and our forgiveness. The only way we know how deep and wide, and high, and long, and vast God's love and forgiveness towards us is that we got to get to know him deeper, and deeper, and more, and more. The depth of our love for others is measured by how much we forgive, and it's directly correlated to how much we know we've been forgiven. This is a very significant truth. Hebrews 10, 14, for by one offering he has perfected all time those who are being saved. He said, their sins and lawless deeds are remembered no more. That's the depth of our forgiveness. It's been erased. Romans 8, 1, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because the righteous requirements of the law have been fully met. We have all been forgiven much. 
some of us who have lived a lifestyle that God has so tangibly brought us out of that sin, we definitely in a physical life understand more what we've been saved from. But from a theological standpoint, we've all been saved out of hostility and a vile reproach to the King of Kings because we're all sinners in front of a holy God. We've all been saved from the death penalty. So we're to walk in love as Christ loves us. Well, how does he love? He loves us sacrificially, unconditionally, without condition, faithful. Okay, so imitate God. How do we do that? Now verses 3 through 10 come into play. So in context, in verses 3 to 10 of chapter 5 of Ephesians, it would take an entire message just to teach through the cultural norms in the first century in Asia Minor where Paul was writing. Realistically, probably the letter wasn't written right to the Ephesians, but Asia Minor in general, the Ephesian church happened to take it at the time, but it was a general call. The Greek and Roman pagan influence is absolutely stunning. It's almost unbearable to read the debauchery that was going on in the name of the Greek gods and goddesses and the Roman culture and in the name of worship. So this is what Paul's addressing. And it helps to learn that context. And it'll be Weston's job because he's in verse 19 coming up. So hopefully he'll do that. But as we look here, Paul jumps right into, after he says, walk in love, imitate God. He says, but, look at verse 3. But immorality or in any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is improper for the saints, verse 4, and there must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving thanks. For this you know with certainty. This is, this is the Alexander the Great moment to me that Paul says, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater, has an inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. So what does this have to do with walking in love? Well, everything. One commentator said, I read this week, whatever it is that God establishes, Satan will counterfeit. The great deceiver will manipulate, twist, distort, and takes God's holy standard and deceive us by redefining it and dumbing it down or compromising it to where we can live it out and feel pretty good about ourselves. Paul presents this strikingly brutal contrast in verse 3, says, but, and he goes right to the heart of love's counterfeit, immorality, impurity, and greed. I mean, this is the world's definition of love. It cannot be better summed up than immorality, impurity, and greediness. Now, and I'm not going to spend a ton of time dissecting all of the extensive word study that these have, these terms are, except literally they translate combined together into kind of the worst type of fornication possible. Immorality, the Greek word porneia, we know that it come, we get pornography from that word. The word impurity, 
Ekatharsia literally translates uncleanness. I love this word because it's used 11 times in the New Testament and 10 of which is used like this. In regard to sexual sin, immoral fornication, 10 times it's connected to sexual evil and it means vile, rotten stench of a decaying dead body. I've never smelled a dead body decaying, but I have driven by a dead deer that's decaying, and the smell is penetratingly putrefying, is it not? It's unmistakable how disgusting it is to your sense of smell. You know it's vile, and it's the worst kind of smell. You're driving along, skunk's fine, dead corpse, oh, terrible. And that's exactly what Paul means when he speaks of how vile and impure sexual sin is of all kinds. Do you know that in 2018-19, among adults of 18 to 49, you know what the number one rated TV series is? Game of Thrones. And on the list in the top 10 are Walking Dead, The Bachelor, and football. <laughs> Yay. Game of Thrones. I looked up the parent guide on the Internet Movie Database. If you're a parent, you don't know it, go search IMBD and look it up because anytime you want to watch a film, there's a parent guide where real parents type in things on certain graphic categories about movies. The Internet Movie Database has a severe rating on every category, sex and nudity, violence and gore, and profanity. Severe. And the number one rated TV series, guys, and I quote, sex is a driving force of this series. Nudity occurs throughout each season with several scenes and situations of rape and incest. And I'm sorry that I just read that. But if you want a definition of what Paul is writing about immorality and impurity and greed, that's the definition. And it should disgust every single one of us, and we shouldn't have any part of it. Ephesians 3, Paul lays it out there, and that's just a television series. What? None of it should ever, verse 3, look at verse 3. And none of it should ever be even named among you because it is improper for the saints. It's counterfeit love and it's from the pit of hell. What's interesting to me is that Paul uses the word greed in that same list. Pleonexia. It translates covetousness. Satan's greatest weapon is to counterfeit the truth of God. Come on, Eve. You're not going to die. You're going to be more like God. He manipulates God's truth. He twists it and he says, that's not really what God means. It's been his MO from the beginning. God's love is others-centered. Satan's lie is that love is self-centered. Greed and covetousness could not 
be more significant in this list because coveting is desiring what you do not have. Exodus 20, 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's ox, your neighbor's mule, your neighbor's stuff. If it was today and the Ten Commandments would be written, it would be written, you shall not covet your neighbor's Ford F-250, Super Duty, Quad Cab, four-wheel drive, turbo diesel. Sorry, I don't know why that, where that came from. I couldn't have possibly want something like that. But then he says, you shall not covet your, your, your neighbor's wife. None of somebody else's stuff shall you covet. Coveting your neighbor's wife, coveting your neighbor's stuff, coveting people you see on TV, in movies, in books we read, we covet when we subject ourselves to things that are immoral and impure, and we desire that because it makes us feel good. It's self-centered love. It's not others' love. It's not a godly love because we want what we cannot have. So we subject ourselves to it. Satan's lie straight out of the pit is immoral, it's impure, he takes love and wraps it in this cloak of you'll only be better if you have that, the song again, the sin that promised me great joy and great life is going to lead me to the grave. Paul says it shouldn't even be named among you. When the reality of this kind of love is not a gratifying enjoyment. It is a stench of dead, rotting, maggot-filled evil. Phew. Just when you think you're off the hook because you're not physically immoral, Paul, like he always does, goes into the heart of everybody. Verse 4. And there must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting. I love these three words. But they seem strange in English and a little bit out of context compared to what this heavy, immoral stuff Paul's talking about. What does it mean? Well, here it is. You're not only not to act immorally, you're not to talk about it, and you're not to entertain yourself with it in any way, shape, or form. Don't do it. Don't talk about it. Don't be entertained by it. Disgraceful talk is what filthiness means. It has to do with words that are disgraceful. In other words, words that are shockingly unacceptable, unspeakable, wicked, immoral. Talk about those things. You can hardly read a book without that garbage from it. You can hardly see a TV program without that garbage in it. You can't even see very few movies. I work outside of teaching. I work at night and deliver pharmaceuticals. I'm a mule. I deliver drugs. To home hospice situations, to uh, residential health care facilities and whatnot. I drive and I deliver drugs, and I had a point to that. <laughs> the people I work with, that was my point. 
And when we're, when we're separating pharmaceuticals and getting our routes to go drive, and we'll drive two to 300 miles in a night delivering drugs. I go down to Oroville and Chico and Greeley Paradise. And um, I mean, I've been to Modesto and Truckee. I mean, I'll just put on miles of delivering pharmaceuticals and I get paid $12 an hour. It's amazing. The people I work with, their talk, the foul language that comes out of their mouth, the content of what they speak of is hard to even be in the same room with them, participating, building relationships. Just disgraceful. Paul says, don't do it. It's amazing what happens with the conviction of the Holy Spirit I, when he works on you. And I got home from one of my mule runs the other day, and <laughs> Becky and I sat down, the TV was on, and it was an episode of Friends. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you enjoyed watching Friends. But go ahead and stand. <laughs> We sat and watched this episode. The next morning, we both just, we were quiet. We watched it. We went to bed. We kind of were just, you know, settling down. We went to bed. We, we got up the next day, and, and we spoke about how much this episode was so convicting that we actually sat and subjected ourselves. Each of the three little scenes had such immorality going on, from adultery to sexual sin to infidelity, every one of them. And it was all in the name of humor and a bunch of friends just having a good time. And really, for the, one of the first times, Becky and I go, what are we doing? And frankly, we laugh at the larity of shows like The Office. is filled with filthy, disgraceful talk. I kind of can't believe 13-year-olds in the classroom watch The Office. And what's, I think, more inappropriate than that is the fact that somehow I think it's okay for me to watch it and not for young people. Well, I'm an adult. I can handle immorality. What is the matter with my heart? It's not based on a standard of God's holiness. It's based on a standard of me being a Christian and compromising what God really means. Aren't we called to holy conversation? When we open our mouths, the Bible tells us we should be speaking from the very mind of God, the very heart of God, the lips of Jesus. Paul writes, just in chapter 4, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Chapter 5, verse 19 in Ephesians, speak to one another in psalms. Speak holy words, godly words. The next word in this list is silly talk or foolish talk. Greek moros, 
you guessed it, moronic. We get the word moron from it. It's just, it's stupid talk. It's senseless talk. It refers to just being gutter mouth. It's profitless. It's foul. But the third term is what's interesting to me. And I've never seen it in context like this past week. It's coarse jesting. And I hate to tell you this, but I'm happy to report it does not have anything to do with sarcasm. <laughs> Praise God, because it is a spiritual gift. Right, Molly? <laughs> yeah. Now, see, here's the thing. It's literally meaning, it literally is defined as dirty wit. What does that mean? It's a cleverness of speech that turns what's said into some perverted innuendo. And if you've watched The Office, that is the entire punchline almost of every character in that show. The perversion, the innuendo, and we laugh at it and we think it's funny. So these two lists of three and four are so intricately tied together. It's a list of what Satan has done with God's love. It's a worldly love. It's twisted. It's perverted. And we're not to involve ourselves in any of that. We're not even to talk about such things. And frankly, we're not to hear them talked about. So my question to me and to you is, what are we entertaining ourselves with on TV? on our handheld devices, on our computer screens, at the movies. I'm going to tell you something, and I'm not going to go into great detail. Take me to lunch, and I'll talk to you about it sometime. But my wife and I decided, and it was a challenge, and it's turned into something that's been such a beautiful thing in our marriage. We... deactivated and deleted off of our phones our Facebook and Instagram accounts on the 1st of June. And we said, let's just step away from this for a few months, for the summer. Let's get out of the habit of sitting down with each other at the couch, watching TV, and just being on our Facebook feed, because 90% of it is garbage. You can tell me until you're blue in the face that you get to keep up in touch with your friends. Fine, 10% of it is. But most of your friends are acting narcissistic and idiotic on it in the first place, and we laugh at that. But we decided to get rid of it. And I'm telling you, I don't want it back. It has been a joy to have our phones just setting and not even paying attention to it until somebody texts us because they want to talk to us. Not because they posted something wonderful about themselves. It's hard to explain what the Lord is doing in our hearts and the conviction of the Spirit. But I will tell you, the addictive nature of cell phones is not just for young people. Because when you set your phones aside and start paying attention to other people because your, your face isn't in your phone, you start looking, oh my gosh, look at them, look at them, look at that, look at that. And then you go, 
Would you get off your phone? I'm sitting here talking to you. And I was guilty of the very same thing. It, it, it's, it, don't take my conviction as yours. I'm just saying what it's done for us by not having push notification after push notification after interest after interest and being entertained by other people's stupidity and having family members that'll go, man, look at this meme. And it's the most inappropriate thing about some political figure and it has such horrible innuendo and we laugh and we go, man, it's funny and we're entertaining ourselves with it. But then we go, but I'm holy. I'm walking and imitating God. Now, we're gonna, rubber's going to meet the road here in a second. Colossians 5, Paul says the same thing when he writes to the church of Colossae. He says in chapter 3, verse 5, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, and greed. Same list that he uses in Ephesians. All of Asia Minor was dealing with it. And see, it's a direct violation of the first and second commandments God gives in Exodus 20. Have no other gods before me. Make no, no other gods an idol. Verse 5 in Exodus 20, you shall not worship or serve them because the Lord your God is a jealous God. When we subject ourselves to immorality, when I subject myself to innuendo and immoral and impure thoughts, and entertain myself with that stuff. I'm worshiping myself. I am the idol that I'm worshiping because I'm placing my own interests above my creator and savior. It is not imitating God when I entertain myself with foolishness, with immorality. Okay, so then I step back and go, aren't you taking this a bit far, Patrick? Come on, give me a break. I mean, we can't hardly watch TV without some immorality. It's just part of life. I mean, is Paul really drawing a line in the sand that we're supposed to separate ourselves from the world? Well, we're in the world, but we're not of the world. And spiritually speaking, my response would be Matthew 10, 38. Jesus talks to his disciples. He says, take up your cross and follow me. And to a Jew in the first century, the cross was so significant because it was a picture of a violent, degrading death. And what Jesus was calling his disciples to was full surrender even unto death. Well, that was his disciples. Well, you're right. But then he says in chapter 16, verse 24, if anyone wishes to come follow me, they must deny themselves, take up the cross. See, it's about a radical change. It's, it's a radical command, but the call is clear. Imitate God. And so what's the remedy for this? Verse 4, look at it. In all of this, he says, now, give thanks. Give thanks. Isn't that something? What's the antidote in life for pleasure-seeking immorality, impure, greedy, covetousness, filthiness in our lives? What's the antidote? Give thanks. 
Why? Because giving thanks is absolutely unselfish. When it's pure. See, instead of seeking immorality of all kinds, which is the epitome of self-centeredness, it cares nothing about God or others, you stop and you give thanks for other things. You give thanks for God in your life. You give thanks for other people in your life. You don't want stuff from them. You just give thanks for them in your life. It's others-centered. It's the most unselfish thing we can do. Spend all your days giving thanks, and you'll step right out of sight of yourself and express your love for God and for others. You thank God for what you have, and you don't complain about what you don't have. Now, here's the other aspect of giving thanks that just came to me yesterday as I was running a chainsaw, and I was sweating and dying and pulling shrubs, and going, I can't wait for fall so I can burn half my property. And I thought, as I was complaining, that one son was in Chico, and the other one was, I don't know where he was, probably with his girlfriend somewhere, I don't know, fishing. I go, man, think about this for a moment. I'm so grateful God gave this to me because it is, it's dynamite. I'm going to write a book about it. Probably somebody has, but I'm going to write one's better. In addition to giving thanks, here's the other aspect, which is the key. It is absolutely not possible to give thanks for immorality. Are you hearing me? It is absolutely impossible to watch the Game of Thrones and sit back and go, thank you, God, for what I just watched. I am a better, more worshipful human being for watching this program. Thank you. It is not possible to have a foul mouth and say, thank you, Lord, for the conversation I just had as I ripped my children and wife to shreds. It is not possible to watch or to participate in any kind of immoral or impure or greedy attitude because it's sin, and we can't thank God for sin. So Paul says the antidote for immoral living is saying thanks. So how do we do that? We're flipping through the guide and going, I want to watch the episode of The Office and go, can I give thanks for God for this immorality? Man, I, I love watching movies and Becky and I, Becky, you know, this next movie coming out is coming out soon and it's a movie I want to watch and I step back and I go, can I go to that film and pay my 10 bucks and walk away and go, thank you God for all of the violence, the death, the immorality and the foul language that I just saw. Of course not. It's stupid. And if I'm taking it a little bit too far, then I must have the wrong definition of what it means to imitate God. That's where you all say, Amen. Uh, if I'm a little fired up about it, I apologize, because God is working in me. God is working in my own life, in my marriage, 
and in our family, and it's, it's awesome because we just cruise. And Becky and I, we'll be celebrating 25 years of marriage in December. It's December 18th. Our address is 3373 Denise Way. Cards, whatever. We are in a point where we're going, man, we're good people. But man, God is just revealing to us how much we've missed by walking in the love that he requires, by imitating God the way he wants us to live. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. It doesn't just mean the things that come to us. It means also the things that we participate in. In our workplace, Thank you, God, for my, my selfish, false motives of dealing with that client. Thank you, God, that I, w- I cheated on my tax return to get more money. Thank you, God, that I was able to just have a little immoral thought because it felt so good. Paul says the antidote for immorality is giving thanks. And we miss the significance of what that means. Theologically and spiritually, when we just think it's just others-centered, it's what we subject ourselves to. Psalm 136 says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. And his love endures forever. Nothing we can ever do in life will teach us to be unselfish than giving thanks. Now, here's the sobering reality in verse 5. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Paul doesn't mix words. He says the utterly immoral and impure who is practicing idolatry, they have broken the first commandment to position another God before the one true God, and that idol is yourself. It's not to be a Christian's lifestyle, period. It is not to be the characteristic of a saint, for those are the people of the world. And frankly, there's no room for doubt here about God's attitude towards immoral living. And so Paul admonishes us in verse 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. You'll be all right. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He'll forgive you. It'll be okay. You made a decision. No. Paul says, continue to prove that you're in the faith. And how do you do that? You do that by godly living. Doesn't mean we don't fall and stumble. But don't be deceived. Do we sin that grace may abound all the more? Romans 6, absolutely not. We're finally free not to sin, Paul says. Therefore, do not, verse 7, therefore do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you're the light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. 
For the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. These are the very things for which God damns people to hell. So don't be deceived. These are not characteristics of children of God. Paul says, do not participate then. Do not participate in them. Don't entertain yourself with them. Learn what is pleasing to the Lord. And what is that? Well, it's verses 1 and 2. Imitate God and walk in love. Be imitators of God. Walk in love just as God in Christ loves you. In order to walk in love, we must forgive. And the depth of our love correlates to the depth of how much we know we've been forgiven. And we've been forgiven much. Walk in love, imitate God, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Amen? Father in heaven, thank you for your word, the conviction of it, the power of it, the truth of it. Lord, we live in a world today, Jesus, that is compromised. Our culture is disgustingly rich with hatred towards holy living in the name of bigotry and in the name of intolerance. God, you've given us this standard. And if we were all honest with ourselves, we know there are times, and maybe right now, that we live in compromise to walk in love as you've called us. And we just dumb down the curriculum. But Father, there is such blessing when we are empowered by the Spirit of God, indwelt by the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, the resurrection power, we have a living in us. And so, Jesus, may we take these truths and apply them uncompromisingly, whatever it may take, that we can live a radical life and receive the blessing that all of the kingdom can produce up until the day we enter your glory. Help us to hate sin. Help us to have a new vision of what you want for us. Maybe a renewed vision. And for those of us that are living and breathing your spirit-filled lives, may they be an encouragement to others uncompromisingly to come alongside and challenge and mentor. Lord, just thank you. Thank you for your word. It is sharper than any double-edged sword, and it penetrates. And so penetrate our hearts. Convict us of our double-minded ways, which are unstable, and help us to live a life that is worthy of our calling. If we name the name of Christ, may we walk as Christ walked. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.